Ever wonder what history's most famous and infamous people would say if you asked them for their side of the story? Well, here's your chance. You're listening to Hindsight, an original podcast by Al Jazeera. I'm Charles Dance. This is a dramatized series based on historical events that resurrect some of the world's most memorable figures. In this episode, we meet Ulrike Meinhof, one half of the infamous Bader-Meinhof gang that robbed, bombed, kidnapped, and killed their way across Germany in the early 1970s. The media had accused Meinhof of being mesmerized by Bader, of abandoning her children in a selfish split-second act that turned her into a fugitive. In hindsight, was she a deranged terrorist who took her own life to evade justice, or a misunderstood victim of a tumultuous mid-20th century Europe? Hindsight, you've heard of them. Now it's time you hear from them. tell you my name. I will not cooperate with the fascist state of Germany. The Hanover police held me at the station. They'd been told I was Ulrike Meinhof, a wanted terrorist. But after two years on the run, I didn't look much like the round-faced woman with short brown hair in the wanted posters anymore. Get away from me! Let go of me! The Ulrike Meinhof being held in custody certainly didn't sound like the logical, calm voice of the political left that they might have heard on television when she was a prominent journalist in Germany. What is that? You're trying to kill me! They weren't. It was a sedative, so that she'd stay still long enough for the police to take an X-ray of her head. The authorities wanted to see if there was a metal clamp in her brain a relic from an old surgery that would confirm her identity. At my trial, they would use that surgery to explain me. That it must have been brain damage that led a woman like me to choose a life of violence. Sexist. Brain damage? What about the damage to a country? To a society? To a generation? I was born on October 7, 1934, in Nazi Germany, so shame is my birthright. One of my clearest childhood memories is of the bright yellow star on my godmother Grete Ulrich's coat. She was wearing it the last time I ever saw her. Don't cry, Mama. Grete will come back, won't you, Grete? Oh, Grete, we will pray for you. Grete was Jewish. In 1943, she was sent to a concentration camp. I don't know which one. She never came back. I was nine. That goodbye on our doorstep left me with an ache that never really went away. I was a war child. The Allied raids were relentless. Our town wasn't a prime target, but the sound of planes always made my heart sink anyway. My childhood was full of goodbyes and heartache. My father died of cancer near the start of the war, when I was about five. My mother had cancer and died after the war, when I was barely a teenager. My sister Wienke was 17. Orphans in the aftermath of war. We were sad survivors in a defeated country. A country shamed by the Holocaust and torn in two by our occupiers. Western capitalism in the West, Soviet communism in the East. 
Even then, I wondered who we were as this German generation. But at least I had my sister, and I had Renate. What would have become of us without her? She was our mother's friend and colleague and had been living with us ever since my father died, to help make ends meet, as my mother would say. Renata Riemick was a remarkable woman in her own right in the newly established West Germany. She was just 29 years old in 1949, but already a professor in Oldenburg, as well as a Christian peace activist in the early anti-nuclear movement. She wore trousers, smoked a pipe, and was devoted to her partner, a woman named Holder. She defied the conventions of the time. After my mother died, Renate became my guardian, but she was more than that. She was my mentor and confidant, especially after Winke left home for university. My friends at school said I was just like Renate. That made me so proud. Girls, want to come over tonight? Renate just gave me the new Thomas Mann book, and it's filled me with ideas about arguments for humane reason. Renate took me to church, and we discussed Christian values. I was brought up to believe it was my duty to make the world a better place. She was larger than life, and made me feel like everything was possible. I loved her very much. When I went away to university in 1955, her influence stayed with me. I joined the protest movement against the nuclear arms race between the United States and the Soviet Union. I didn't survive a world war to watch a nuclear one end civilization. I was filled with a sense of purpose at those protests. I got into student politics eventually and joined the leftist Students for a Democratic Society, the SDS. This is also when I began to write seriously. I was spending more time in the university newspaper office. Anyone who is more afraid of a Russian dictatorship than a nuclear war is welcome to commit suicide. But I and millions of others should be allowed to live. The Allied occupiers, the United States, France and the United Kingdom, left in 1955, making West Germany an independent country. The divide between East and West, communism and capitalism, left and right, was no more keenly felt than in Meinhof's home country. And she was already leaning very much to the left. I was growing up. I started smoking and dating. I even got engaged when I was 21. His name was Lothar Wallek. We loved each other. We really did. But there was a problem. I don't understand why you won't convert. My religion is so important to me. I turned to Renate for help. Hello? I'm beginning to worry Lothar and I are headed for disaster. He's a Catholic, that's the problem. We are Protestants. What would we do about our children? Realizing that their religious differences could be a problem, Meinhof broke it off. But her faith will be tested again. I was a 24-year-old student activist when I met Klaus Röhl, a man who would promote me, use me, 
marry me, get me pregnant and cheat on me. I should have listened to my instincts when I first met him. He irritated me. Klaus Röhl, it is nice to meet you. I've heard of you and your student magazine. Yes, I read concrete. We were both at a conference on anti-nuclear committees in Frankfurt. He was flashy, gregarious. Not what you'd expect at the helm of a serious leftist magazine. I didn't think much of him, but was intrigued when he asked me to write for Concrete. So I quit university and moved to its headquarters in Hamburg. And so the seemingly impulsive activist, with a knack for writing, jumps into the role of the observer. It was a decision she would come to regret. My first column was called Peace is Making History, about meetings between the two main Cold War antagonists, the Soviet Union and the United States. I argued that peace had become the determining factor for political action. I was still a pacifist, so I was optimistic. Pacifists have little other choice. Meinhof's leftist star was on the rise. Her voice became part of the alternative chorus of Concrete, a meeting place of political and cultural ideas from intellectuals, students, and the larger public. She developed a talent for sharp prose that picked apart the arguments of right-wing pundits. So when the government tells us that we must defend democracy with the most powerful weapons on earth, I say this. Nuclear armament and democratic society are irreconcilable. The statement can be cast in the negative. Armament and the end of democracy are complementary. Mass destruction and terrorism go together. Her serious, earnest tone soon became the object of both her boss's aversion and adoration. Klaus Ruhl was almost the opposite to the serious-minded Meinhof. He was flamboyant, chased women, and loved a good party. But they were on the same side of the political divide in Germany nonetheless, After all, he had started and grown the most important left-wing magazine in Germany, and he was a clandestine communist. Not long after I started working there in 1959, Klaus let me in on his secret. That day in his office, Klaus, the man whose motto was enjoy capitalism because socialism is going to be tough, told me Konkret was funded by the German Democratic Republic. Communist East Germany, and he wanted me to attend a couple of meetings with the handlers in East Berlin. Our Eastern comrades liked me a lot. My next piece? I'm working on one about the attacks on leftists in the country. I'm calling it the New German Ghetto Show. Klaus would sit there at the meetings, basking in my intellectualism. It felt like I was giving him some kind of intellectual legitimacy. I suppose I felt a little used. While I don't think he was a serious socialist, I respected the way Klaus always defended the editorial independence of Concrete. I began to see him in a different light. I stopped hating Klaus and married him instead in 1961. Love and hate. Funny how close those emotions can be. But that was us. Between his outrageous image as a provocateur and my serious socialist reputation, 
We made a striking couple. And life took off. I became editor-in-chief at Konkret. I brought in some badly needed editorial rules and standards and together Klaus and I attracted some of the best writers and thinkers in both East and West Germany. The right wing in Germany, especially all the ex-Nazis, really wanted to shut us down. But those attempts only made us even more popular. Klaus, I just got word. The conservatives lost their defamation case against us. <laughs> Mist. No, I'm okay. It's just another headache. <sighs> Actually, I think I'll go home early. 1962 was both joyful and debilitating. I became a mother under dramatic circumstances. I suffered many headaches during the pregnancy, and as soon as our twin girls were born, doctors operated to remove what they thought was a brain tumor. It turned out to be a blood clot, which they closed with a metal clamp. Brain surgery? Twin girls? I was exhausted. Renate was able to help with little Bettina and Regine while I recovered. But she couldn't stay forever. And after that, I'm embarrassed to say, I had nannies help me. Some socialist I was turning out to be. But I was happy. At least at first. And at least with my daughters and my work. For the most part, I could write what I wanted at Concrete. I provoked and poked. The older people will have to remember that the anti-Jewish posters used to hang in public view. But they continued to vote for Hitler. I wrote against the political establishment's decision to allow our capitalist Western allies to keep their military on our soil, on the dividing line between the West and the communist bloc. I wrote against the right-wing's push to bring in so-called emergency laws, constitutional rights to impose martial law. It smacked of fascism. Meinhof's opinions did not represent the majority, no matter how sharp her arguments. Most Germans at the time were conservative. They were keen to put the Nazi past behind them and embrace American-style capitalism. But Konkret was popular enough to stir up the right-wingers in Germany to the delight of its East German backers. That is, until some of the writers started going after the lack of personal freedoms within the Soviet bloc. That was a step too far. Our comrades pulled our funding in 1964. Klaus had to retool concrete to keep it afloat, so he diluted the politics with a good dose of sex, drugs and rock and roll. I didn't feel suited for the role as editor-in-chief anymore. You want to put my picture beside my byline? What, am I a star or something? Fine, as long as we stick with my maiden name. I became the star columnist, but it made me uncomfortable. So it was a strategic move, the serious Ulrike Meinhof writing on the politics of the day to balance the topless girls on the cover. We published more often, thousands read my column and doors opened. I started to go on TV. But you must understand this issue from the side of the worker, not just the factory owner. I appeared in television debates as a voice of the left, usually the only woman, surrounded by old men in suits. Olga is not her real name, 
but the pain caused by her sexual abuse is sincere. I wrote current affairs pieces for television. I was especially interested in the stories of girls and women marginalized by society. Ulrike Meinhoff reporting. But by 1965, nothing had changed. Germany still allowed the Americans to keep nuclear weapons on our soil. The gap between rich and poor widened as Western consumerism consumed us. And the government hacked away at the right to challenge any of it, especially with the development of the emergency laws. My words were powerless. I felt powerless. So much for the pen being mightier than the sword. Slowly, it all began to feel like a facade. Our lifestyle in Hamburg began to feel decadent, divorced from my own political ideals. In super-conservative post-war Germany, Klaus and I were considered radical chic. We were invited to all the society parties. It was an atmosphere charged with music, politics and sex. I swear, Klaus, if that guy puts his hand on me one more time, I may scream. The free love of the 1960s never sat well with me. It bothered me that Klaus flirted and even had affairs with other women. I suppose I tried to understand him, but it hurt. I was raised deeply Christian. I did, however, love the music at those parties. I loved to dance. Oh, no, thank you. I like to dance by myself. No, no. I'm not lonely. See? I am dancing with my reflection in the mirror. But I didn't recognize myself in the big gilded mirror on the wall. Who was that person dressed in designer clothes, surrounded by swingers? What had happened to that young Christian pacifist activist I once knew? Things had to change. I had to change. I got back into student politics again and rejoined the Students for a Democratic Society. But the movement was changing. My pacifism was becoming passé. By 1967, the German student protest movement was combustible, reactive to the government's domestic decisions that Meinhof wrote about, like emergency laws, and fueled by opposition to the American war in Vietnam. Then a series of events in June of 1967 lit a fuse. It started with a protest against the official visit from the Shah of Iran. For the left, he was the embodiment of the excesses of capitalism, American imperialism, and nuclearization. The latest from Berlin. Police have had no choice but to put down a student riot. Lies. This is utter propaganda. Fascists. If you believed the official line dutifully reported by the media, this is what you would have thought. That the students were violent and got what they deserved. It was a lie. I got my hands on the raw footage and dissected it for a television special. This is what really happened. Student protesters were protesting peacefully and well within their rights outside the opera house where the state was treating the Shah to a performance of Mozart's The Magic Flute. The protests were peaceful until a group of the Shah's supporters showed up and picked a fight. Now, and this is important, the police were there, 
but they didn't stop the fighting. In fact, they joined in against the German students. The police left the Shah supporters alone. They cornered a student named Benno Ohnesorg in an alleyway and shot him in the head. The protests against the chief of a police state, the Shah, unmask our state as a police state. We have come to understand that freedom in this state means the freedom of the police. I was outraged. We all were. Anti-police protests exploded across West Germany. I felt more conflicted than ever. Sometimes I have the feeling I'm going crazy. My relationship with Klaus, my acceptance by the establishment, the work with students. Three different parts of my life that seem irreconcilable and are tearing me apart, pulling me to pieces. Meinhof wasn't just searching for solutions to the world's problems. She wanted to find her kind of people. And that certainly wasn't with her husband in Hamburg. Radio and television beyond concrete. It's all agreeable on a human level, but doesn't fulfill my need for human warmth, solidarity, and belonging to a group. The people she would end up finding would prove to be violent ideologues. Klaus fell in love with another woman. The marriage was over, and honestly, I was relieved to leave my indulgent life behind me. Where to next? I decided on Berlin which was the center of the student protest movement. I moved there in February 1968 into a big house with my daughters. As a journalist, I wanted to be close to the story. But I also wanted to be an activist, and I wasn't sure how long I'd last as either. Nineteen sixty-eight was a year of unprecedented student protests. Not just in Germany, but around the world. It seemed like half the world's young people were demanding an end of the old ways and the beginning of new, more open societies. In Germany, the student unrest morphed into what became known as the German student movement. Sit-ins at universities, rolling protests, massive rallies, plenty of vandalism and destruction, and police crackdowns. In the middle of it all was Ulrike Meinhof. Most of the other media vilified the students. I was beginning to see their violence as a form of defense and wrote so much in concrete. Protest is when I say this is something I don't like. Resistance is when I put an end to what I don't like. I took on a bigger role within the Students for a Democratic Society, particularly when it came to pushing for greater roles for women. But I wasn't a leader. I was still an observer, an outsider looking in. People came and went in my life. Nobody really special. Until I met Gudrun Enslin. Beautiful, fierce Enslin. You are mine, I remember your face from court. I interviewed Enslin while I reported on her trial in 1968. 
She and three men were charged with bombing a department store to protest against the war in Vietnam. Blonde hair fell around her angular face like a mane. Her eyes studied me. I think I might have blushed under the scrutiny, even though as a journalist I was there to scrutinize her. It's not an exaggeration to say that their encounter would prove to be life-changing for Meinhof. She was a brilliant PhD student and an activist who, like many of us other young Germans, had been radicalized by the murder of Benno Ohnesorg at the anti-Shah protests. Enslin made an impression on me. This was a woman of action. Gudrun Enslin and her three accomplices were sentenced to three years in prison. They appealed and their case became a matter of public controversy. Meinhof never used any of the Enslin interview, explaining it could have compromised her and prevented her release. Meinhof was clearly not interested in letting her readers know who Enslin really was. She'd much rather protect this charismatic, violent activist, and it wouldn't take long to see why. By the end of 1968, it was time to say how I really felt about journalism about the utter uselessness of writers and concrete. I called it columnism. Columns are luxury items. Columnists are stars. Articles are painstakingly edited. They must be saleable. I quit concrete in 1969. Meinhof was known as one of the best political writers in Germany. But she didn't want to have anything to do with it anymore. Then one morning, I turned on my radio. Enslin Bader were last seen in Italy. They are traveling under the pseudonyms Hansel and Gretel. Enslin, we need your help. Gudrun Enslin and her boyfriend Andreas Bader were on the run from the law. Their appeal of their bombing verdict had been rejected. They'd been out on bail and were supposed to go back to jail to serve their sentence. Instead... They came knocking on Meinhof's door in Berlin. I didn't really understand what Enslin saw in Andreas Bader. He was a show-off and had been in and out of jail for petty crimes, not what I'd consider a serious political person. That said, I was proud to harbor fugitives from a justice system that didn't even know the meaning of the word justice. I had a large home. I had money. They could stay as long as they liked. Was there another calculation running through Meinhof's mind when she let the two fugitives stay? To shut that door would have been to shut the door on a friendship with Enslin, and along with it, all her connections to the activist movement that Meinhof so desperately wanted to be part of, now that her life as a journalist was behind her. My house became a meeting place for Enslin and Bader's friends and supporters. They came and went for months, plotting how they could spark a revolution. Then one day, Bader drove out to a cemetery to dig up some weapons he had hidden there. Police caught up with him and threw him in prison in April 1970. We must free him, Meinhof. We must. I wanted to help. And I had an idea. And that idea would prove to be pivotal in how Ulrike Meinhof's life would come to finally unravel. Good to see you, Andreas Bader. 
I used my name and influence to get Bada a day pass from jail so that he could do research with me at the Free University of Berlin for a book on disadvantaged youth. The university shut an entire section to the public so that we could do our work. Let's get started in this section. It was all nonsense, of course. There was no book. I watched the door from a row of research journals and waited. My heart pounded in my ears. I reminded myself that I had to look shocked when the rescuers arrived. On the ground, don't move. Three friends, guns pointed, came through the door. Anslin in a mask, two other girls we knew, and a hired gunman, also masked. The librarians took off running. I couldn't see the guards. Don't run! Wait! Don't shoot! But before I knew it, a university employee was on the ground, bleeding. It wasn't supposed to happen this way. I looked up and saw the others running towards an open window. Let's go, let's go! Let's get out of here! Enslin's eyes bore into mine, almost daring me. Then she jumped. I'm not sure if I even knew what I was doing until I did it, but seconds later, I too stood at the window. Who I was was still in the library, sitting between the stacks of books, the lonely pacifist, playing her role in a life she was trying to change. Who I would become was out this window. I thought you said you were supposed to stay behind. I thought you said no one would get hurt. So why did she do it? Did she panic? It was certainly a split-second decision. She hadn't made arrangements for her daughters. That was unlike her. Hello, Jürgen. It's Ulrike. Please, something's happened. Can you pick up the girls from school for me? Thank you. I'll explain later. I was a pacifist no more, and I finally belonged to something. We called it the Red Army Faction. Our mission... Use terror to provoke the German government into a major crackdown that would in turn spark a wider revolution. The time for reckoning with our Nazi past was upon us. The time to reject capitalist imperialism was here. And so, at 36 years old, Ulrike Meinhof makes the transformation from a religious pacifist intellectual with a family to a violent would-be revolutionary on the run. She didn't know it then, but her generation would bring about great social changes, eventually and peacefully, if she only knew. Comrades of 883, there is no point in trying to explain the right thing to the wrong people. We have done that long enough. The Red Army faction came into the world through my typewriter. It was made up of Gudrun Enslin, Andreas Bader, myself, the girls from the kidnapping, and about a dozen others. We were all considered co-founders, but the chain of command really started with Enslin, in my view. I immediately recognized my own role in this army, Chief Communications Officer. Let the class struggle unfold. Let the proletariat organize. Let the armed resistance begin. Build up the Red Army. It wasn't exactly my usual style. <laughs> but that's because we all wrote our communiques together. 
we illustrated it with our emblem, a bright red star with an MP5 machine gun, and the letters RAF. The Red Army faction was a small organization compared to the other so-called terror groups operating in Europe at the time. The factions of the Irish Republican Army, the Basque Separatist Group, ETA. They were different in their aims, but all espoused armed struggle against the status quo with a Marxist bent. From Dublin to Barcelona, the debate on the left was whether or not to support them. Was one person's terrorist another person's freedom fighter? It's a debate that endures to this day. Of course, our message went right over the head of the mainstream media. They became obsessed with finding a reason why a well-known media personality like myself would throw it all away. Even Klaus got into it. He told one reporter that he blamed my brain surgery, said it changed my personality and killed my interest in sex. I had a contact, French journalist Michel Rey, who I thought might be fair. I was wrong. She published a comment that was very much meant to be off the record. Look, let me explain something. Of course we say the cops are pigs. We say the guy in uniform is a pig, not a human being. And that's how we have to deal with him. We don't talk to him because it is wrong to talk to these people. And so there may be gunfire. The whole exercise backfired. The left was already critical of the escape, saying it delegitimized the student movement. We came off worse than ever. Now we come to a major misconception of Meinhof's story. The media largely ignored the name the group gave themselves and, for the most part, called it the Bader-Meinhof Gang. No mention of Enslin, who was more of a leader than either of them. Bader might have deserved his bad boy image, but Meinhof was painted as some kind of deranged sex kitten. A wanton woman mesmerized by Bader who had abandoned her children. Hello, Jürgen. Hello. Are the little birds in their new nest? The two little birds were my daughters. I arranged for them to be taken from Germany to a hippie commune in Italy. And we, we were in Jordan, guests of the Palestinian Liberation Organization. In the PLO training camp, we worked on our guerrilla tactics. We learned to shoot, to jump out of moving cars. It was all part of our plan to carry out attacks on the German state and provoke the trigger-happy police into a full-on conflict, a revolution. I was part of this group now. I gave up the power of my own decisions for the cause. They were no longer just my own, even when it came to my daughters. The decision on where to send my girls was made for us in the end. As for us, We didn't last long at the camp. The PLO thought we were too Western, too wild, and kicked us out that August. We headed back to Europe. But before I could get to my girls in Italy, a traitor told my ex-husband where to find them. <laughs> What do you mean Klaus has got them? <laughs> They're in Hamburg? <laughs> How could you let this happen? <laughs> I don't often get emotional, but I did that day. My girls, 
Perhaps it was for the best. It made the decision to fully commit to an armed struggle that much easier. Not that I was much good at it. Get in! Let's go! Let's go! Everyone okay? Meinhof! What's wrong? I think I forgot one of the bags. We were back in West Germany, funding our revolution by robbing banks. I wasn't very good at it. Mein Gott, you idiot! This isn't the first time you've screwed up a robbery. It's a good thing you can write. I did have one other use. I found us safe houses. I still had friends who would shelter us, feed us, even if they didn't agree with what we were doing. The Red Army faction spent the better part of two years going from one safe house to another, robbing and stealing their way across Germany for the sake of their revolution. In the end, they were wanted for 54 attempted murders. Both the police and media were on the hunt. The group penned this reaction in 1971, one of their most famous missives. It's called the Urban Guerrilla Concept, and once again, Meinhof is believed to be the chief copywriter. It is clear that the massive hunt for us is really directed against the entire socialist left in the Federal Republic and West Berlin. This circus cannot be justified by the small amount of money or the few cars and documents we are alleged to have stolen. Up until now, the Red Army faction still had some public support in Germany. While many on the left were against violence, they understood the cause, namely the opposition to the government. But that was about to change. We finally had the funds for our revolution. We called it the May Offensive, six bombings in all. My role for the first four was communications officer, as usual. May 11, 1972. We, the Red Army Faction, take responsibility for the attack on the US military headquarters in Frankfurt. May 12, 1972. The bombings on the police headquarters in Augsburg and on the state criminal investigator's office in Munich. And May 15, 1972. The car bombing in Karlsruhe. The fifth bombing was my idea. We planted bombs in the Springer Publishing House in Hamburg on May 19. The final bombing came on May 24, 1972, on the second U.S. military target, this time in Heidelberg. In all, the bombings killed four people, injured more than 40 others, and infused Germany's society with fear. All hell broke loose. The police's tactics against the Red Army faction were pretty brutal before the bombings in May, but after it turned into a complete crackdown. Police were everywhere, in the cities, on the highways, at gas stations. It was just a matter of time before one of us was caught. They got Bader first in early June. They tracked down Enslin the following week. I kept moving and ended up in Hanover. Through some friends, I was able to find an apartment. It had been two years and one month since I had jumped out of that window. 
but eventually my time on the run was up. I would never be free again. Once they identified her using an X-ray to detect the metal clamp in her brain, authorities put Meinhof in her own cell in the isolation wing at Ossendorf Prison in Cologne to await trial. She sat there for nearly eight months. They called it the dead wing, you know? Ironic, because it was the brightest place I'd ever been. All white cell. The lights always on. The hum of those lights... Oh, God. It was torture. The feeling your head is exploding. The feeling the top of your skull should really tear apart. Burst wide open. The feeling your spinal column is pressing into your brain. The feeling your brain is gradually shriveling up. Lawyers protested against her treatment. The only visitors Meinhof was allowed were her daughters. She wrote to them afterwards. You were here. I think the whole prison was glad. That's how it seemed to me. Will you visit me again? Meinhof never saw her daughters again. She kept on writing, her text disjointed and lacking the sharp logic she had been known for. One shuts peace a defense of Palestinian fighters who attacked the Olympic village in Munich in 1972 that killed 11 Israeli athletes and coaches earned her the reputation of an anti-Semite. A sad turn of events for a woman who spent years calling out a nation for its Nazi past. I thought the worst was over when they moved all of the Red Army faction members to Stammheim prison in 1974. We were all housed in one wing and were allowed to talk, even to visit each other's cells. But Enslin wanted nothing to do with me. Enslin? Is that you? What cell are you in? Meinhof. Ah, you are the knife in the back of the Red Army faction. They had turned on me. They called me a traitor. A liberal pig. I didn't really understand why. But I didn't hate Enslin for it. I hated myself. I even defended her when the trial finally got underway in May 1975. I defended all of us. If we, the Red Army faction, are criminal, then it's good to be criminal. If we are deemed murderers because a couple of American GI pigs turned up their toes in Heidelberg and Frankfurt, and because we are meant to be the ones who planted the bombs, then it's good to be a murderer. Our revolution wasn't over, but I felt my days were numbered. I told my sister, if something happens to me in prison, it will be murder. I will not hurt myself. On May 9th, 1976, nearly five years after she was arrested, Ulrike Meinhof was found dead in her cell. She was 41 years old. The autopsy said suicide, but this was widely disputed. Fingers pointed at the government, 
as well as her old comrades. 4,000 people showed up for Meinhof's funeral, as much to protest against her death as to mourn it. Her comrades, Gudrun Enslin, Andreas Bader, and the rest, were imprisoned for five more years before carrying out a suicide pact in October 1977. Or was it a government conspiracy, as their followers have suggested? They, in turn, took up the terror banner and carried out RAF attacks all the way through the 1980s before finally disbanding. As for Meinhof's daughters, their opposing views of their mother mirror her divided legacy. One remembers her fondly as a misunderstood revolutionary. The other has written extensively about just how dangerous and treacherous Ulrike Meinhof really was. But there's a limit to her daughter Bettina's resentment. When the government confiscated Meinhof's brain for study, Bettina successfully campaigned to get it back. As she said, even a dead terrorist has the right to be treated fairly. Hindsight is narrated by me, Charles Dance. This series was produced by Sout Podcasts. Their team is producer Rana Darwood, associate producer Basan Samhut. Sound design by Taisir Kabani. Assembly sound editing by Yazan Kawas. This episode is written by Morgan Waters. Research by Rama Sabanek. Fact-checking and interview by Rahaf Salahat. Special thanks to Dr. Kalin Bauer for speaking to us about the character. Ulrika Meinhof is played by Hannah Kent. Extra voice is played by Hussein Bader. Voice coaching by Zian Ganmar. Recording by Audio Process and MCS Recording. Additional research and fact-checking by Al Jazeera and Lynn Enwin. Script editing by Danilo Haveleska. Joe DeFrias is the executive producer of Special Projects. Juan Carlos van Meek is Al Jazeera's director of digital innovation and programming. Hindsight is a historical drama podcast. All dramatized scenes and dialogue are inspired by historical events, old interviews, and in some cases, new conversations with people close to the subject. <laughs>